0: This is the Theology Matters podcast, a podcast of the Center of Theological Inquiry in Princeton, New Jersey. I'm Josh Malden, and I'm here today with Dr. Andrew Davison, who is the Starbridge Associate Professor in Theology and Natural Sciences at the University of Cambridge and also a fellow of CTI. And Andrew and I are here co-hosting a special series of the podcast, uh, an ongoing series for a few months, which is exploring the question of just what is theology and specifically what is systematic theology. And in this series, over the next several episodes, we'll be interviewing a range of scholars working in the area of systematic theology. People you might have heard of like Sarah Coakley, Janet Soskis, Ian McFarland, Douglas Otati, and several others discussing with them what they see as the purposes, goals, and value of systematic theology. To get this conversation started, Andrew and I are going to discuss the topic as an introduction today. Learn more about what the topic is and why we think it's a, an important conversation. And as I've said before uh, at the beginning, this is a podcast from the Center of Theological Inquiry. And because at CTI we're interdisciplinary, we're always in dialogue with other disciplines, we're often asked by scholars in other fields, just what is theology? We also have supporters who want to know what theology is. So it's a a good question to be kind of going back to the fundamentals and thinking about what we're up to. Turning over to Andrew, uh, maybe speak a bit about how this project, you know, you and I have been in conversation about it for some time, how this project came to be interesting to you and perhaps your own background in theology.
1: Thank you very much, Josh. Well, I taught systematic theology for eight years before I took my current position in theology and natural science. Uh, In Oxford, I had this marvellous title, I was Tutoring Doctrine, uh, Tutoring Christian Doctrine, uh, and then a similar position uh, later on at a Theological College in Cambridge. Uh, So I lived and breathed it for eight years, and it still is one of my main areas of interest. Well, that's a good enough reason to be interested in what it might be. At the moment, this first year at CTI, I'm writing a book on how the different themes in Christian theology hang together and how our sense of theology can be enriched by approaching one aspect in terms of another. So what does it mean to think about creation in terms of Jesus, and to think about sin in terms of God, and redemption in terms of the life of the world to come, and so on. So that's the project I'm involved with at the moment. And a couple of the books, three three of the books I think that I've written up till now, including the one that's just about to come out, which is a CTI book on uh, life beyond Earth, I've taken a similar kind of approach of taking a topic like what it means when we bless things or life beyond earth and walking through them from the perspective of of all the big topics in Christian theology, all the topics that you get in the creed. So this approach of treating things systematically and now particularly of asking how those parts hang together has been quite a priority in my work really.
0: Sort of stepping back and speaking to to folks who are not Sort of academics, not in the field, uh, but are interested. It's a field that goes by many names. We might talk about theology more broadly, or systematic theology, or doctrine, or dogmatics. I think for our purposes today, we'll probably be going with systematic theology as a kind of catch-all term, but maybe speak to wh-
1: why that is. Well, I think to give a straightforward answer before I get a bit more complicated, what this series is about is systematic theology in the sense of the topics that turn up in the creed. So God, creation, Jesus, sin and redemption, the Holy Spirit, the church, that sort of thing. Um, and that's how we mean theology. But there's no, in this series, but there's no monopoly on that word. And that's not unusual. Most words go by several meanings, some of them unrelated, but often related. If you look in a dictionary, it usually says one this, two that, three the other. And I think it's helpful to think about it in terms of maybe nested boxes, you know, boxes inside boxes. So there's a sense in which theology names everything that happens in a faculty of theology. And that might include study of many religions, it might include anthropology, study of languages, history, all sorts of things. Uh, Then we could draw a sort of smaller box within that. And then theology sometimes is used to be all the things that belong to a tradition as it understands itself. So not necessarily analysed from the outside, anthropologically, say, but all the parts of the faith as a community understands it. So that would take in, for instance, biblical studies and ethics um, alongside what we're calling systematic theology. And then as a kind of smallest box within that box, uh, people talk about systematic theology uh, as, as being... The things that turn up in the creed so that's that's quite thematic i mean it's interested in the bible it jumps off from the bible but it's not biblical studies It probably has a very strong historical sense but it's not the same as history it probably has a strong sense of the liturgy for instance but it's not liturgy so i think the the, the box in the middle of the boxes is all those themes god creation evil sin redemption that kind of thing and that's the middle box the smallest box in the other two that's what we're going to be looking at yeah, it goes by lots of names. People that I mean dogmatics has been quite common, you know, that which is held, that which has been taught. Doctrine means pretty much the same thing, that which has that which has been taught. Um and systematic theology I guess puts the emphasis on the sense of an interrelated web of ideas. And I I think that will come up a bit in the podcast. The question of names will come up. I'm so excited about this list of people that we've we've got. Uh, you know, some of them were recorded already. Uh, it's it's really turned out to be even better than I hoped, I think, this series. Absolutely. We've got some wonderful
0: conversations that we're going to be turning to, and we still have some more uh, that we haven't recorded yet. The area, as has been clear in these conversations we've had so far, is very vibrant at the moment. There's a lot of excitement um, at kind of returning to these, these uh, classical themes in theology and going through them thinking through them the implications for other areas of how we think and live maybe speak to that where do you see that that vibrancy and and what's the sort of source of of that
1: well i think of the conversation that we've already had with sarah coakley and i think it was uh it was sarah who said people are just quite serious about the faith you know and i suppose there's no longer that cultural sense that people go to church because it's the thing to be done and Therefore, especially perhaps amongst younger people, if they've embraced the faith um, or if it's always been theirs, but they're taking it seriously, I think that's part of why there's this interest in going back and reading sources and and thinking about these uh, big ideas. And you're absolutely right that there's no doubt we're in the middle of a revival of interest in systematic theology and doctrine and the content of the faith. And I I like making things visual and and, uh, concrete. and, And one, I think, quite concrete image of that is if you go to the publisher's book hall in say the big conference the American Academy of Religion conference that's held each year I've just seen over the last 10 years or so more and more books on these themes uh, also uh, republication and translation of of historical works where really you know that really is central to the uh, new interest um, in writers of the past church fathers medievals reformers but even some neglected periods so I guess you know, people had never quite forgotten about Augustine and Athanasius and the those early uh, Christian writers. But interest then dropped off pretty soon after, I don't know, the 6th century or something like that. But those later centuries, Byzantine theology, early medieval theology, that, that's getting published. People are really interested in figures like Maximus the Confessor and John, and, John of Damascus. And then uh, also with the Reformation. So uh, no one's ever really quite forgotten about Calvin and Luther, but there was a generation or two after them Who were maybe a bit more systematic, a bit less polemical, because the Reformation had had bedded down. Uh, And that, you know, people had really not paid much attention to that for a long time. And those really interesting Protestant uh, theologians are being uh, translated, published works on them. So we really are in, in the middle of a great time for publication. And it stretches across the tradition. So thinking about it, we've got at least one Anglican. Baptist, Presbyterian, Roman Catholic, in the lineup. As an Anglican, I might myself. I might note that Sarah Coakley, Catherine Sonderegger, Graham Ward have all written systematic theologies. or actually they're all on, on on with the project at the moment. And Anglicans never used to write systematic theologies, or at least it wasn't our thing. People used to write erudite essays, but the idea of writing something that tried to cover the, all the bases. Uh, was just wasn't a very Anglican thing to do. And that's definitely changing. And I think something that will come up in the podcasts is the question of uh, what it looks like, like genre, what it looks like on the page, style of writing, uh, the different audiences or readerships that they've got in mind. I mean, maybe one of the reasons why those Anglicans are happy about it is there are plenty of people who are writing nowadays who aren't writing systematic theology as if they were booming out of nowhere and Writing this kind of neutral, totally objective. This is just what everyone ought to think about everything. I uh, mean, Sarah again. Sarah Coakley talks about the need to write from on in each volume about some, also some pressing social question. So I think maybe people are willing to do this more because they're not thinking that they have to write some kind of systematics for the ages that takes a view from nowhere. But it can be. Um, with you know, real attention to context. And that's that's going to come up in quite a lot of our authors. They're not academics who are disconnected from the needs and sorrows of the world. Uh, I think across the board, actually, that, that comes uh, up in these interviews. And it's not just books. There are podcasts and there are online magazines and things. It's a, it's a really interesting time to be thinking about this.
0: Absolutely. And I, I'm glad you hit the note of the kind of ecumenical nature of this. I mean, even while people are, are very much working out of their own traditions and not trying to leave those traditions behind, as we've already seen in these interviews, in some sense, coming around uh, the, the question of these basic doctrines is actually a space for ecumenical dialogue in the sense that. So many different traditions are interested in in kind of recovering some of this. Mm. Um, You spoke of several traditions. Also, Ian McFarlane is a Lutheran, so we have a Lutheran in the mix. We do. Um, We'll have several others. In addition to the ecumenical side, I wanted to get you to speak to the interdisciplinary side. You know, CTI, as you've known from various projects you've been working on uh, in theology and science, and yourself are both a scientist and a theologian. CTI has always been focused on working across these academic fields, breaking down silos Uh, moving across disciplines. So one thing we'll want to think a little bit about is
1: interdisciplinary work and what the significance of this is for for that kind of work. Maybe speak to that. It might be helpful for me to come at this from that side of, of theology and science, which is my main job. And I would say that's really characterized today by a new interest in particularity, you know, in specific questions. There was a time in the... 70s, 80s, 90s, when people were asking much broader methodological questions about how how can science and theology even have a conversation? And I think if that feels like it's passed a bit, it's probably just because it was successful. You know, people work that through. They established that there's all sorts of fruitful conversations can be had. I in a way, then the historians uh, rode in and kind of saved the day by saying, well, actually, the idea that there couldn't be a conversation between these things is so historically implausible. That uh in some ways it that blows those uh, general questions out of the out of the uh, water when you just see centuries and centuries and centuries of really constructive and interesting relationships between uh, these things. So I would say that theology and science today is characterized by this interest in specific questions. So there's a a group um around John Perry in uh, St. Andrews who came up with the idea of science engaged theology, and I think that's one of the ways in which this approach, can be named. Um, they're not solely responsible. Uh, I and other people were enthusiastic about this uh, method alongside that. But uh, you know, what, what John Perry has been stressing is uh, take take scientific questions that are um, significant for, the, for theology that are small enough that you can get really get into the detail of the science. But I also think that when you do that, you would get into the detail of the theology. So I don't know whether that seems paradoxical, so I'm thinking about some aspect of of evolution. Because evolution is an extremely interesting field at the moment, with all, all sorts of uh, developments. You think about some specific field. So I, I've written about niche construction, the idea that
0: mm-hmm.
1: organisms fit their environment not just because they've evolved to fit the environment, because they actually also adapt to the environment. So I've been sort of thinking about organisms as makers um, and a part of the story of the unfolding of creation. When you get down into kind of scientific detail, you end up also, I think writing about theological detail, and that ends up coming from some particular perspective. You end up writing as an Augustinian or a Lutheran or as a Thomist. And I just think that's much that's much better theological, theologically, because theology does have these great traditions. And I actually feel like I can um have a more constructive conversation with a theologian who takes a particular perspective, even if it's not in, in my own, because I recognize that they've kind of got into the weeds and the detail. And there's always historical relationships between these traditions anyway. I find that more constructive and enjoyable than trying to have a conversation about theology that's kind of homeless and a context that's kind of just, you know, vague. Um, So I think with interdisciplinary work, in my experience, when you get into something quite specific that's interdisciplinary, it forces you to have to be quite specific also about where you're drawing your uh, resources from. Oh, that's very helpful. You, you, work, you work on the boundary between disciplines, including systematic theology. How would you say that is reflected in your field of study in the 21st century?
0: My area has always been more theological ethics, which we might see as kind of a subfield. As you, you said, there's a whole bunch of subfields even within theology, uh, looking at uh, the ethical implications of the Christian theological tradition. I was always drawn or I became drawn, especially in a course on Thomas Aquinas, um, two figures who are looking at the whole breadth uh, and and depth of the tradition. So it was really a course on Thomas Aquinas. When you read Aquinas, as you know, you're you've an expert in Thomas. Um, it's very difficult and perhaps impossible to think of any theological question that he hasn't raised and answers <laughs> given a, a very interesting answer to replied to objection. He's really thinking about the whole the whole picture. Uh, I ended up not writing on Aquinas for my dissertation, but instead Karl Barth, but I was attracted to Barth for sort of the same reason. Even while their their methods are so different, they're both trying to kind of give a, a whole picture. And we keep mentioning this in- interview we did recently with Sarah Coakley, which was so fascinating. And one of the things that listeners can look forward to is she talks about a lot of the kind of objections to systematic theology, not least one of of the objections being that it's too boring. Um, So you get to hear her uh, respond to that critique. But one of the other critiques is perhaps that it's a sort of inherently conservative enterprise, uh, some might say, I suppose because it takes a certain set of loci or areas of reflection for theology for granted, and then seeks to make process within those given areas as opposed to sort of, let's say, completely overthrowing them and starting from scratch or something like that. And for some, it might mean that um, they might think that we should you know, not talk about systematic theology, but instead something like constructive theology, another term that we hear sometimes, and I'm
1: not objecting to that term. But how would you respond to that critique? Constructive theology is a great term. I use it to some extent, in contrast with historical theology. So historical theology is a study of the theology of the past, trying to understand it as an intellectual story. And constructive theology is kind of doing in one's own time what they did in theirs. You know, they didn't didn't think of themselves as historical theologians. They were just getting on with being theologians and answering questions that were maybe newly posed or... um, Doing theology in their time, so I think of constructive theology as doing theology in your time. And the, the point maybe to make is that in the twenty-first century, there's a very strong relation between those two. And a, a lot of people will say that they get their resources and inspiration for being constructive theologians by also being historical theologians or drawing on the work of historical theologians. So I don't think they're at all in in conflict. And that will come up, I'm sure, again and again. The sense of being a responsible constructive theologian now uh, in dialogue with, but not just parroting, the, the historical uh, theology of the past. In terms of um, being conservative, well, we've got um, Matthew Barrett and Craig Carter, two uh, Baptist theologians who I think would uncomplicatedly describe themselves as conservatives, and we've got Doug Atati, who I think would uncomplicatedly describe himself as a, as a liberal um and is uh coming from a, a really different perspective I mean, they don't talk to one another on the podcast but they both i think cheerfully and constructively talk to us uh, so there's a, there is a, yeah. that, there's that breadth um i suppose another thing to say is um you know some readers will think oh you know this could be quite conservative that's a problem other uh did i say readers other <laughs> other listeners listener. um, <laughs> um will uh, will hear it and say you know great what's wrong about that so um I don't want to sort of make that idea uh, necessarily a, a problem, but I think what I'd want to say even more than that is that the theological task is to get beyond slogans and the sorts of categories that sometimes get imposed upon us. So I think we would find amongst many of our uh, you know people that we've interviewed the sense of a real confidence in the tradition and a reverence for it, um, with you know potentially sometimes like progressive politics or, you know, sort of like radical take on some things. I don't know. Uh, certainly not being very happy about the the economic status quo, for instance. So I think the idea that you can say that there are people who are just conservatives in everything or you know, just liberals, whatever. I think part of what attention to the past helps us with is it just gives us such a different view on things that we can outwit some of the ways in which we're put into silos and, you know, into these rigid... Uh, positions there's a great essay, maybe it come up later on in the series but there's a great um, essay by c.s lewis called on reading old books where he says the problem the great thing about um reading old books is that they just put us into a different intellectual milieu where we see that certain the ways in which everyone thinks today uh weren't that people didn't think about that in the past so he says Provocatively, you've mentioned Bart. He says there are things that even Bart and Hitler hold in common, which they can't imagine that they hold in common because they haven't. There's there's nothing to compare it with, um, mm-hmm. and yeah. So I re- I reckon one of the things that comes up that's so useful about reading great writers from the past is that they can help us to see that terms like conservative can do more harm than good, or liberal, or whatever, and that we actually should try and break out of the tramlines of this sort of social expectation that you have to believe everything in column A or everything in column B.
0: That's fascinating. I I just wrote down on reading old books uh, to look that up. I haven't read that essay, so I'm looking forward to reading that.
1: That's a lovely story. It was the introduction forward to a translation of Athanasius' On the Incarnation of the Word, translated by a nun of Wantage, a nun of the Society of St. Mary and Wantage. She didn't give us her name. Uh, and it's, it was originally just preface to Athanasius and then it had it took on a life of its own in some of his essay collections.
0: We're also, we've done an interview with Ian McFarland um, and in it, he talks very interestingly at, about how he's at Emory University and he's a, a university professor there in theology. And one of his roles is to sort of discuss to the broader university what theology is and what the, the purpose of it is. And uh, in the sort of U.S. um, academic context, that's a somewhat unusual role. Uh, I wanna bring that up to segue into a question about what I'm interested, and I I hope this is one of the things we'll be able to explore throughout this series, Andrew, in what makes theology have an interest in being systematic such that we have such a term as systematic theology. If you look at university disciplines today across um, the academy, you don't see a lot of talk of systematic, you know, fields. So, so you don't hear about systematic science or systematic biology, systematic physics. I mean, or even systematic philosophy. I, I was thinking about it. You, you kind of you do see a, a, a move towards system in some of the, in earlier philosophy. I mean, if you think of Kant, Hegel, you kind of see a systematic bent. But philosophy, as it is now. I don't know. I, I don't see much talk about. It. I want to create a systematic philosophy. Maybe, maybe I haven't seen seen where that is, but it does exist. It's more less focused on certain problems, and maybe as a whole aggregate, we'll will come up with some sort of uh, co system. But not a single individual is going to try to like look at the whole the whole picture. So, what, yeah, what do you think uh, leads to, if if that's right? And feel free to sort of complicate that. But if that's right, what do you think leads theology in some sense? Um, distinctively to want to look at a
1: sort of systematic picture. Well, I think you're right about the university. And this is probably going to be particularly true when it comes to research and in universities that, that prioritize that, that maybe in teaching, we still tend to be systematic, um, especially in say first year courses, in, in maybe in biology yeah. or even you know in philosophy, that there'd be some sense of wanting to try and give a bird's eye view. But... The more you get into research, the more you get into the weeds, into the detail and become a specialist or even a micro specialist. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, in in order to have new things to say, uh, you've got to burrow down. And also there's just so much is published now that unless you mark out for yourself some pretty detailed specialism, you're just never going to be able to keep up with what's being uh, written. So that would be, uh, I think, an anti-systematic or unsystematic um, impulse. And that would be even true of theology that people do become specialists. They might have to teach systematic theology, but in their research, they probably tend to uh, be specialists. I suppose my work's a bit unusual in as much as you know, I mentioned that some of the books I've written have been, well, they've been particular and general, I've taken a particular topic, blessing, participation, life beyond earth, and then tried to walk it through the breadth of, of systematic theology. So I think I've wanted to try and keep a foot in both camps, but... Otherwise, I'd say research does tend to get um, away from systematicity into detail. Um, I, I, I love the systematicity of systematic theology, and I think we'll see that in our guests as well. And I think for me, it's a reflection of, of unity, that at the, at the end of the day, theology is about God and there's one God. You know, At the end of the day, theology is about the act of God in Christ, which in a certain sense is one overarching act um, the creation is one. Um, all things, you know, uh, have a destiny in God. So there's something about that unity, often with respect to God, that means that the disparate can be joined up in relation to that unity. They're kind of inherently, they're facets of something that in itself isn't divided. Um, but I mean, the other thing to say there is that theology has this extraordinary breadth. Uh, Aquinas talks about theology as being the study of God and everything as it relates to God. That's, you know, pretty broad set of topics. So on the one hand, you've got this impulse towards breadth. And on the other hand, you've got this sense that it it must have a unity to it because it's all about God. Uh, so I think that's what systematic theology is, is doing. Um, I, one last thing I'd say is i mentioned teaching. I said that was quite systematic sometimes. I think actually Quite a lot of what goes by the name of systematic theology ends up being something more like sequential theology. Uh, yeah. That in a first year course, you don't really teach it so much as a, as a system or a network, you know, sort of joined up grid. You teach it by walking through the topics. Um, and there's still a challenge or even a controversy about where you begin. I mean, this is theologians get hot under the collar with one another about whether you start with creation or God or prolegomena or revelation. But um, uh-huh. you know that excitement aside, you pretty much then, however many weeks you've got, you just work through the topics. Life, the world to come, creation, sin, redemption, theological anthropology. Uh, so that's not actually that systematic. As I say, it's more sequential. Um, and I'm really grateful to CTI for the research time that I've got at the moment because one of the things that I'm doing in this year alongside the Life Beyond Earth work is to write a book on how it all hangs together so which I've got in my mind really is the kind of book you might put at the end of a first year course you might say if you got really interested in this and you want to see how it might hang together then you know go and read Davison's book Uh, and I'm trying to say what if you yeah what if you approach each topic through the others that really is systematic that I think that's a I think if people like systematic theology, they'll they'll like that project. It's fascinating. I'm looking forward to this.
0: Uh, maybe just as a final uh, bit to talk about, is there any anything else we should talk about in terms of what we're hoping from this mini series and uh, getting people excited about the,
1: the the coming episodes? Well, I think the good thing about doing it as a set of interviews is it's all very personal and human, and it's going to be interwoven with biography and quite a bit of humor, and I think that's that's appealing. But in and in an, amongst all of that, I think we'll get a sense of the shape or mood of the discipline, or maybe it's got more than one shape and mood. You know, where, where's the energy? Uh, what are people up to? Maybe what do they think isn't being done enough that ought to be done? Um, maybe some of the reasons why systematic theology is having a renaissance. I think I've mentioned already, it's a bit of a almost an obsession of mine. I'm interested in the forms of writing and what it looks like on the page. And I'm going to, I think we're going to keep asking that question of people. So, Bart famously, he has big print and then he he gets into detail with small print that you can sort of pass over if you, if you need to. Um, Aquinas does it through objections to what he thinks, what he thinks, responding to the um, objections, you know, really in charitable uh, ways. Um, People sometimes have numbered propositions and um, just, there are lots of different ways of, of laying it out on the page um, Sarah is going to talk about the way in which she brought art into one volume I think she's bringing poetry into another anyway that's, that is something I think that's going to come up just because it's an interest uh, of mine how do you even go about writing it and what does it look like on the page and there'll be some I think interesting comments on neighbouring fields philosophy and philosophical theology public theology, ethics um, we're not going to necessarily pursue that in each case but I think these are these are capacious thinkers and people with a love for the church and the needs of the world. And I think that's going to come up quite a bit too.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to putting these out there, especially, you know, since we've already done a few of the interviews, we know what's in there and we're really excited about getting it out uh, to the public. We'll be putting these episodes out throughout the spring of 2023. Uh, so look out for those in the next few weeks and thanks for listening.